All right, today on Landry.audio, Dr. Richard Hames, entrepreneur, strategic futurist, mentor, and author. Forbes Asia called him one of the smartest people on the planet, and he is among the world's most influential thinkers. Richard has correctly, excuse me, correctly predicted the following. Uh, the anticipated hijacked planes crashing into the World Trade Center. Correctly, the forecast of the global financial crisis forecasted the success of the first iPod and Tesla electric cars and also predicted the Arab Spring as well as Trump's election. We've got about an hour uh, with him today. So, Richard, first of all, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. And probably the first question I'm going to ask you for a lot of people is, uh, you know, what is a futurist and how do you get into this line of work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, uh, there, are, there are a number of different kinds of futurists. There are pop futurists who look at patterns and trends and try and predict what's going to happen next year or the year after. Um, they're thick on the ground. They're the, the academic futurists who really try to invent tools and methods for being better able to anticipate uh, the future, which is, in a, in a sense, of course, it's impossible to know what's going to happen in the future. Uh, I, I'm in a third category, which looks at deeper patterns and trends uh, globally and across uh, society to try and work out what those underlying patterns are going to do in terms of creating a different kind of society. Uh, and then I try to make some kind of uh, forecast or make better sense, if you like, of what's happening today. Okay. And, you know, you, as I said in the introduction, you've been it's been told that you've correctly predicted. So when we talk about correctly predicting is there mm. a spectrum between vague conceptualization versus correctly dating a time place oh event? yes like, how do you sort of ballpark these ideas of uh, futurism yeah well it, it all comes down to method and the, we rely on a very rigorous and comprehensive method for better anticipating the future or, to, or tomorrow. And, and it differs, yes, from, from vagueness. I mean, uh, I, I was uh, dubbed a latter-day Nostradamus, which is most unfortunate, really, because... Well, he missed a lot well, of his predictions, didn't he? Well, majority. Not, not, yeah, but not just that. I mean, he spoke in vague metaphors wrapped up in riddles. Mm. Um, but, I, I mean, I guess the alternative is not too pleasing either, because Cassandra, for example was the victim of a more than usually cruel form of divine punishment. She, she was granted powers to see the future by Apollo, the god Apollo, but she rejected his amorous advances and he cursed her. And so her predictions, while always true, were never believed by anybody. So, I mean, it's between the devil and the deep blue sea, you know, it's very difficult. But to get, to get back to our process, which is very, very important, what we do these days is to use AI, artificial intelligence, to take a question or a theme, a topic, an industry, or a uh, something that's in a state of change at the moment. You might look at um, the workplace, for example, and, and want to know more about how automation and standardization is going to impact jobs. And so what we do there is we ask the question of a, a proprietary algorithm uh, who then scans literally hundreds of millions of documents that are available online um, to try and answer those questions or bring us information that's relevant uh, to, to give us a data pack, a data pack, an information pack to start with. Um, and then we, the, we send that information pack out to possibly up to a 100 of around 3,000 trusted sources we have around the world. Because what we want is um, a feedback around that information, uh, that information pack from a variety of people who work in different industries, who see the world from a different cultural perspective, who have a different lens on on that kind of information. And when we get that back, 
we then sort that into scenarios. We do, we create different stories around different contexts and, and input different kinds of possibilities. And then we start making predictions about what the future could hold in each of those environments, in each of those scenarios. And, and then <laughs> finally, we're usually forced to say, well, given all of that, here is the, here are the probabilities, here are the possibilities, and we, we just try to narrow it down to specific, uh, events, um, if, if necessary, or, um, patterns that will, will be influential. Okay. And I mean, you're popping down here, you're doing a couple of dates in Australia shortly. I mean, this is a large part of your job is going out and, and speaking and making media appearances. Uh, who's your audience and, and what are they, what do they want to hear from you? Yeah. Uh, the, the audience is very mixed actually. They're, they're looking for greater certainty in, in an age of volatility, complexity, uncertainty and ambiguity. What people are looking for is a greater degree of certainty so that they can plan more effectively. So, so that's really what they're after. And the audience is made up of um, oh, a whole mix of people, uh, men, women, old, young, entrepreneurs, uh, CEOs, ex- executives, uh, bureaucrats, whole range of people who are just looking for that extra edge that, uh, we can give them. Okay. Look, we'll, we'll go through some of these, uh, you know, the predictions that you had correctly anticipated and talk about them. You know, I, I, I remember some of this stuff. Uh, some of it's a little bit interesting. Like, you know, when, as an example, when we talk about, um, you know, nine 11 happening, mm. uh, post the event coming out, uh, I remember reading and in the news, it was reported that there was a lot of Intel that was provided to the, you know, the Bush administration in the months leading up to this, so that this was a, a possibility and, and a high issue of security. Yeah. Um, I mean, where do you even start that? Uh, Cause if you're correctly anticipating this, this, this becomes the outcome or the conclusion. So what's the question that you're asking and what sort of intel are you receiving at this point in time that, that gets you to a point that you say, hey, there's, uh, there's potentially some very dangerous things on the horizon? Yeah, the, the work we were doing in this field was about five years before 9-11. And it was a project that we were involved in with some other futurists uh, with security intelligence organizations. And their question was, given the degree of antipathy that a lot of overseas people are feeling about U.S. foreign policy, what is the likelihood of terrorism or acts of terrorism on our shores. And it involved, it involved organizations in the UK as well. So it was a joint initiative and a joint project. That was the focusing question. And um, we went through the process that we normally go through. We, we um, worked up some scenarios. And it became perfectly obvious to us in each of those scenarios, not, not just one, but each of the, the stories we were creating, that the current... Uh, uh, U.S. Po- uh, policy emanating from the U.S. and the U.K. in the way it uh, saw world events and treated uh, a lot of other countries and countries in the Middle East in particular, that they were going to have a problem um, of, of perhaps many problems uh, in the future. And so what we then did was assumed that certain things would be inevitable. And one of those inevitabilities was domestic terrorism, both in the UK and the US. We then identified a number of targets and the the uh, World Trade Center was actually one of about 15 targets in the US we thought were vulnerable. Uh, we, we obviously thought the White House, uh, the Yankee Stadium, the, the Sears Tower in uh, Chicago, and uh, a number in the UK, the Houses of Parliament, uh, Buckingham Palace, you know, those kinds of things. So, but in fact, we were actually more worried at the time, not about um, uh, missiles or aeroplanes or gliders loaded with explosives um, going into these um, 
monuments, we were actually more worried about uh, water uh, being poisoned, uh, so uh, dams being poisoned. And I mean, that was, I think that was the number one concern. I think uh, the uh, the um, possibility of monuments being um, shot at or, or uh, planes being flown into them was about number three on the list, in fact. But we did, we did actually got to a level of granularity and detail that was useful in terms of intelligence. And that intelligence was given to the security intelligence organizations, and they were... They were informing the relevant uh, people in the U.S. and the U.K. at the time. This was five years before uh, that event. Mm. I was going to ask about that because I, I assume from the outset this is uh, privately sourced and paid for information. So uh, have you come across that in other events or at what point in time do you think it becomes, I guess, a security issue when you have to then inform government about it? I think when we're when we're working for, with that kind of organisation, it becomes a security issue immediately. Uh, as you probably know, I mean, any consultant working for security intelligence organisations or military intelligence organisations, wherever they happen to be, um, are not only sworn to secrecy, of course, but they're under uh, the, the confidentiality agreements that we have to. To sign, so it immediately is a security issue when we're talking about this kind of thing. Mm, okay, um, you know, we then move on. To, the, a lot has been written about the GFC, the global financial crisis, after it happened. There were, there were a lot mm. of really interesting books that were turned into, you know, arguably even even better movies from there. Uh, mm. But you know, they say that you predicted this. So um, you know, from what all that I remember about it is sort of you know the, the packaging together of substandard loans. I mean, who 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 engaged to do this originally, and was that did that become apparent quite early on in terms of uh, you know the the packaging of of poor debt? Okay, so this particular one was interesting because it was an invitation again into the U.S. to talk to a luncheon. Uh, where there was a group of bankers, uh, mostly Wall Street types. And I was asked to speak on the future of the global economy. And when we did our research in preparation for this, uh, we began to realize that the structural conditions that were focused on things like uh, credit default swaps, for example, and really really complicated financial instruments that were being devised and the kinds of uh, behavior that we were seeing from some of the banks, the greed that underpinned uh, a lot of it, we, we started to um, identify a number of things and then we started to connect the dots and saw that the potential for collapse of the global economy uh, really only hinged on, I mean, it was very fragile. It, it hinged on just a few factors. And so we put a slide together and uh, brought those, those things to the attention of my audience in uh, New York. Uh, and that went on the public record. And then that became, that was about three years. It was in May 2005. So about three years before Lehman Brothers went under. Does does any of this information actually impact? Because you know, there's there's always experts and strategists who are always putting together plans, and it seems like you're on the trend at, at least a few years in advance. Does anyone take notice and action this, or does it ultimately just end up getting pushed to the side a lot of the time? I think you know probably the latter. Um, certainly, futurists, um, conventionally futurists haven't been taken too seriously. Uh, foresight isn't regularly included in strategic planning. People find it difficult to put their minds around what might happen tomorrow when all of their training and uh, the emphasis they have to focus on is on today. Um, it's very short-term very myopic, very short-term thinking. So thinking long-term is not something we actually do well. And and um, so I think that that lag in time, the fact that futurists are talking about what's going to happen 
sometimes in many years' time, perhaps a decade or two decades even, um, is not really uh, really attended to as it should be. Do you find uh, – does this change at all culturally? And I only ask that question because I, I have at least previously read that uh, you know, in countries like Japan, they business plan for sometimes a century and multi-generations ahead. Have you ever experienced that? Or are there certain nations or industries that try to uh, – that inherently plan better? Oh, yes, indeed. And you mentioned Japan, and Japan is – is one of those. China is another. That's uh, the a- Asian countries generally, or, or cultures, tend to be playing a long game more than we do in the West. Uh, now, this is an interesting thing, of course, because from a quantum science point of view, there really is no such thing as future. It's all now, um, and so in a sense, what I'm trying to do is pull the deep future and the deep past into what I call the expanded now, where we can artificially, if you like, or pretend to freeze time so that we get a more expansive view of patterns and trends and uh, a deeper understanding, if you like, of how society works and what probabilities therefore exist when uh, those patterns interact in particular ways. Uh, we're sort of. Uh, I won't get into the physics portion of it. That's probably you know above my above my pay grade. But you had mentioned Asian countries. So do you do you notice? How, I mean, you you consult to organizations across the world. Are there certain ones, at least in the West, that you notice um, differently in terms of how they interpret and and potentially action your data? The uh, yes, there's a great deal of difference. I mean, we live, uh, we think we live in a universe, and we we often uh, look at the world at large and try to see it through a single lens. You can call it nowadays. You can call it the Western world view, if you like, because a lot of nations, even developing nations, seem to aspire to the world system that has resulted from that. Um, Western cosmology, scientific realism, uh, capitalism as it's practiced, uh, Cartesian logic, all, all of these things which make up the Western worldview or, or belief system or what I call the episteme. Um, so a lot of the times we think we live in a universe. Actually, we live in a pluriverse, a plurality of cultures. And each of those cultures is different, sometimes in very subtle ways, but certainly um, in ways that we, re- that we interpret time and interpret events and we interpret behaviors. So I'll give you an example. One, in terms of uh, culture, in Australia at the moment, we tend to look at what China does through the lens are used by the U.S., and the idea of empire. And we look at history and world history and say, well, in view of how we've thought about the world and how we've thought about change, we therefore see China in those terms. Now, that's um, fraught with difficulties because although there are things about China's current development that are perhaps we should be cautious about and even perhaps fearful of to see the whole of China's development and aspirations through that lens is absolutely wrong. So we can be very mistaken about China's aims if we look only through that lens. So our job is to make sure that we bring what I call a polyocular view to issues and events and dynamics uh, so that it is genuinely uh, a pluriversal understanding of humanity. I, w- I was going to get to the China stuff later, but we're already at it, so we might as well talk about it. So, um, uh, you, you and I, you and I are, uh, well, I'm Canadian, but I, I live in Australia and you're, you're Australian as well. So we, we, 
probably have a little bit more of a centric view here in terms of our dual relationship between the U.S. as sort of a Western ally and uh, defense partner versus our necessity for trade with China. The first question I'll ask you, I guess, before we start looking at that dichotomy between the two, is mm. um, is the U.S. as an empire in decline? Or are we just waiting for them to die while China rises? Yes, and uh, I, I'm in in opposition to a great deal of great many experts. I believe that what we're seeing in the U.S. at the moment is an empire in decline, and. There are various signals that that is the case. And I think um, there's a lot of criticism, of course, from various quarters about the uh, Donald Trump and the, the current administration. I would see a lot of what he is doing uh, and what is happening in the U.S. at the moment as hastening the collapse of um, many systems that we take for granted capitalism amongst them. So uh, in a sense, uh, I do think that is an empire in decline and we're moving to, into a different world. But I see that in the context of a transition between the, if you like, industrial society and a society we're moving towards, which needs to be more sustainable, more ethical, more empathic in terms of our relationships with each other and with the environment. So I think in a sense, Donald Trump is actually um, a welcoming factor in that much more global, um, deeper understanding of the transition between one society and the next, or if you like, one civilization and the next. You're getting too far ahead of me because I want to talk about each each of these things ah, in, individually, but uh, it's it's good. Okay, so. Um, well, look, why don't we talk about that? So, so you mentioned um, sort of how, how you believe Trump could be, uh, you know, accelerating this decline. Um, give, give me a, a few particular points of, of why you see this happening. In particular, I mean, you even mentioned the decline of capitalism where he arguably he would be, you know, one of the staunchest supporters of that on, on paper. Mm. Yes, I, I, I think uh, well, a couple of examples. Um, the, the the obvious one, the, the more visible one, is how he's treating with such contempt the um, orthodox, bureaucratic, uh, systematic way uh, we have developed foreign affairs and foreign policy and our relate the relationships between one nation and another the fact that he threw caution to the wind and said okay i'm going to go and meet uh, the leader of north korea um just just couldn't have happened previously the fact that he tweets uh, obscenities every day or is, is rude to people i mean it's just undermining the the very british in a way uh, rules and protocols that have been built up over perhaps a century or more in how we relate to others. So that's one example. In terms of capitalism, uh, it's not necessarily Trump and uh, and his administration that is uh, are, the, are the pillars that are, go- are beginning to collapse, beginning to implode. But we'll see it in the U.S. first because uh, of the nature of the U.S. being the the foremost practitioner of predatory capitalism, that is capitalism driven by the greed of the banks particularly. And what we will see, I think, within – and here's a prediction – I think within 10 to 12 to 15 years, governments around the world will have to deal with – differently with the gap that's opened up between the poor and the rich, where we see the ultra wealthy, the um, the oligarchy and the, the, the plutocrats who have who are now storing such wealth um, really becoming a, a problem because more and more wealth is owned by fewer and fewer People now, governments are going to have to address this because it's um, it, it's creating real problems in society. And I think 
I, I think there are two things that they're going to have to address. One is the idea uh, in standard economics that growth or continuous growth is necessary or even possible uh, because on a planet such as ours, unless we do at some stage manage to escape the boundaries of the planet and and start um, going into space, then you know we have finite resources, we have a finite relationship, and we need to think of growth very very differently. It's interesting that politicians at the moment everywhere in the world are focused on the need for growth and and that's important that is their job that is their role but unfortunately they all see more growth uh, as the answer to every problem and 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 that's not the case in some in some situations there should be less growth in some uh, geographies and territories there should be no growth in other parts of the world, there should probably be negative growth. So it's not always more and more growth that is necessary. And we'll, we'll need to address that in a new form of economics, if you like. The second pillar, which is probably even more contentious, and again, I would predict that within 10 to 15 years, this will be on the agenda of governments everywhere, is the way in which an individual today can accumulate an obscene amount of wealth and choose whether or not to pay tax or not. I think probably governments are going to have to say sooner or later there needs to be a cap put on the amount of wealth any individual can accumulate. And, and of course, that will that's one of the pillars of capitalism and that will that will shake capitalism to the core as it's practiced today. What, um, uh, I mean, I guess I don't have the, the intel to sort of disagree with you, but, um, you know, it sounds like this sounds equally dangerous to me because instead of being able to have that wealth in the private sector with people who can earn it, it sounds like we're getting more towards that sort of, uh, uh, Putin version of it where you have to be in government to accumulate wealth and it begins to, you, ha- you need to be a bureaucrat in order to do that because, um, what seems to scare me about this, what you're suggesting is, uh, what, what was the scandal that happened only a couple of years ago where we ended up finding that even government was putting their money into offshore accounts so that they didn't have to pay tax on it. And I think yes, even guys right. like David Cameron were involved in this. Mm, that's right. Uh, the, One of the problems, I think, is that we tend to compartmentalize knowledge and information. And it's the same with uh, complex systems. If, if we, if we analyze uh, issues from within a very narrow uh, range of um, possibilities and, and think of design or redesigning those systems within the same parameters, then we end up with the same kind of uh, stuff where you, the system is ab- absolutely corrupted. So I think in terms of capitalism, the other pillar that we are used to in society that is now used to, to organize um, human affairs is the issue of democracy. And democracy isn't working anywhere in the world. And so and if you take capitalism by itself and say, okay, I need to redesign this, that's not good enough. We need to actually take democracy as well and say, okay, we need to redesign this. And and we need to bring the two together and go back to first principles to say we need to reinvent in this way so that that these things start working for everyone, not just a few people. And how does that work? Because even, um, you know, and I probably fit into this camp uh, that will argue that there are issues with capitalism, but comparatively to the other systems that we have, it still works best. We'll never, we'll never actually achieve equality. In order for someone to be better off, there must be someone who's lesser off. And a lot of this still, in my opinion, has to do with the amount of uh, effort that you're willing to engage to move yourself forward. I mean, so what, what does that sort of do to our, our thinking if we just move from one, one failed system to the next, I suppose? Yeah, yeah, no, a good, good point. And, and, and what you're alluding to there is, uh, an interesting 
uh, range of assumptions because we're so readily caught up in a belief system where we park it, we don't revisit it. Um, and a, a lot of what we believe to be self-evident and the truth and impossible to do better, for example, is simply wrong. It's true that anything we have designed, we can redesign. It's also true that we create, we choose to create poverty. We choose to create crime. We choose to create all the things that are the outcomes of the systems we have in place today. And if we have a mind to, we can reinvent them or redesign them in different ways to achieve different outcomes. Now, the difficulty today and the one to which you allude is that we all, and I'm talking all as in humanity, we all seem to have reached or be in a gridlock uh, of thinking, of cognitive development, if you like, where we've reached a threshold of intellectual capability, where we seem incapable of breaking through that threshold to see design and reinvention from new perspectives. And, and that, to me, is a greater problem than anything like climate change or, or autonomous weapons or, you know, the, the collapse of capitalism or, or democracy not working. The real problem is that humanity as a whole, uh, cognitively speaking, has has imprisoned itself in a prison of our own invention from which it seems impossible to escape. Uh, one of the other things that I'll, I'll add to that or get your opinions on, um, sort of reading that is that every sort of system outside of, uh, you know, capitalism has sort of, it's, it's implementation has almost had to be forced by revolution, which has led to, um, you know, s systematic societal breakdown mm. and sort of in the last, what, 200 years, the only other system that we've really been able to adapt out of that has been communism, which, um, is is certainly more dangerous and has led to to many more deaths than capitalism. I mean, how how do you? Uh, I guess who who comes up with a concept and then the difficulty of trying to implement that? Mm, no, you're, you're right. Uh, but this is part of the gridlock to which I'm referring, because that that thinking today's thinking is informed by the work of Descartes, Cartesian logic, where we tend to group things into black and white, off and on. In other words, there's a dualism underlying our thinking. So with um, politics, for example, we're still stuck in that ideological uh, divide between right and left between conservatism and socialism. What we need to do, and part of the reason I'm saying this is such a trap, is that ideology is actually dead. It no longer works to solve the problems facing us because those problems have become far more complex than they were, well, even 20 or 30 years ago, let alone a century ago when these systems were first mooted and designed. So what we need to be able to do is to transcend those kinds of poles, those polarities, those extremes, transcend and arrive at a belief system which is more inclusive of both of those and gives us greater options to cater for the human family as a whole rather than, you know, a, a, a part of the population. Well, that's sort of what we're seeing in American politics, isn't it? The, the you know, Trumpism is not traditional conservatism. It's not, it's not traditional republicanism. It's this sort of hybrid protectionism, uh, that's anti-war. And at the same time, you know, the, the, the Democrats these days, um, are, are certainly, you know, what, what was liberalism 20 years ago, uh, is certainly not what it is now. Well, I would argue that that isn't transcending the, uh, the ideologically, it's not transcending anything at all. It's actually deepening further the divisions and the fear between one group and another. So, I mean, I just think that's going in the wrong direction. Okay. Um, 
Look, I, I want to go back to this because because we, we we've gone off on a tangent and didn't didn't really come back to that. But we were talking about sort of the position of China, and, and then we moved on to to what was happening in the U.S. Um, so, from what you're telling me, you reckon the U.S. is is in decline. China will become the superpower. I mean, what? What does that do? Um, you know, if we remove issues of of trade, if we just sort of go back to what we saw before, as China would potentially become the U.S., it's already got a, a much larger GDP than Russia. Does that force us to enter in sort of a new phase of the Cold War with what, what we see happening uh, as as China tries to stamp out Hong Kong and? And ensure that you know Taiwan becomes recognized, or, or what they're doing with with the waters in those areas. Um, as much as they say that they're the the media reports that they look inside and not outside, there's certainly uh, very visible signs of of aggression that they're looking for for territory and um, and and the exporting of their own communist philosophy. Uh, if we continue to look through the lens we use today, which is through the lens of the U.S., then we will continue to see it that way. Um, there is alternative evidence. There's different evidence, of course. You can look at um, how long the U.S. has been at war, which is about six decades. It's been been at war with one country or another or one group and another, uh, whereas China hasn't been at war with anyone. Um, you know, I think the aspirations of the Chinese are very different to the old idea of empire and conquering territory. And one of the things we need to do is form a relationship with China based on, on collaboration and education and trade um, rather than one of, uh, if you like, automatic hostility. And uh, we're not doing that at the moment The uh, in, in any sense. So I, I'm concerned that we misunderstand a lot of what China does. And also at the same time, I'm concerned by some of the things that China does that would still fall into that traditional view and the, and the, the current stuff of of the military police um, uh, really being sent down to the border with Hong Kong is is very worrying. The idea that President Xi now has the same kind of authority that Chairman Mao had and is using authoritarian tactics more than ever. You know, these things are a concern, but I think the greater danger is for us to assume that um, China will take the place of the U.S. as the great power in the world. I don't see that it wants that, and I don't think it actually will do that unless we force it into the situation to do, of, of becoming that. Mm. So uh, I, I see what you mean by that in, in terms of, I guess, from the from the sphere that America has always sort of been the world police is sort of the way that I'm interpreting those words and the way that China probably doesn't want anything to do with that. Um, have you also sort of been watching what they're doing? Because I've been reading a lot lately of the way, and we've seen it here in Australia as well, where they're buying up um, pastoral lands or in Africa where they are, they're lending to countries that they know they can't pay the debt in order to secure land or other favors within the country. And it's, uh, it seems at least from, from the limited reading that I'm doing that they're, um, instead of, Sort of setting up military bases across the world that the U.S. is. They're at least doing that from a, an economic perspective to make sure that they have a flag, uh, at least in in every country in the world, almost. Yes, that and that's true. I, d I don't see that as particularly disturbing. Um, uh, well, less disturbing than the military presence would um, would mean. So, uh, yes, it is happening, certainly. It's, and you can view it as a kind of neo-colonialism in a way. Um, but uh, I, I'm not so sure we should be worried too much about that. And, and also they're being very particular about uh, where they're doing that. And in a way, it's, it, it's um, 
an alternative to the Western view of providing aid, which in fact has been a great failure in continent, across continents like Africa, for example. I, I think China is trying something different, and you could even argue that it's based on humanitarian uh, terms and financial terms rather than uh, anything else. Interesting. Okay. Um, I can't remember if I read this as, as part of the work that, that you were doing, but there seems to be some issues with China's currency at the moment, uh, its, its level of debt, the debt that it's buying from the U.S., and, and obviously the, the trade war activity that's happening with Trump. Uh, what do you know about this, and, and what are your uh, you know, uh, opinions on, on, on these sort of issues on the, you know, a, a global financial scale when it comes to China? Yeah, well, I mean, China has has a hand there that could be very useful. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not sure they would want to um, use that hand because it could uh, precipitate um, another financial crisis globally. I don't think it would help anyone. But they do own quite a bit of U.S. debt. They've they've actually been trying to offload that debt for several years now. They're, they've been buying gold rather than U.S. bonds. Uh, and, uh, you know, they would even probably consider a devaluation of the currency before they start using uh, the debt they own as a threat to the U.S. But it's an interesting uh, situation that's been developing. Uh, and And it... And the fault, of course, is with the U.S. in in having that much debt. I mean, it's it's crazy. If you look at all the debt around the world, it really is uh, a crazy situation to be in. And it's also an arrogant uh, position as well because uh, the U.S. Uh, dollar being the uh, global currency for trade is, um, I mean, they just print more. Um, so, you know, difficult situation. Okay. Um, you know, one of the other things that you did, I, I remember going back a few years, when we were in the election campaign between Trump and Hillary, I distinctly remember, I think it was only the LA, the LA Times was the only major media outlet that I remember correcting or correctly predicting Trump's election. Um, the notes here have said that you also did that as well. So do you want to tell us a little bit, I guess, again, how you were engaged on, on this sort of, of research and what were the big, uh, you know, the, the really big sort of red flags where you said, this is, this is going to go the other way. Mm. Yes. We were commissioned by uh, a private, an individual, a high wealth individual in the U.S. to look at that situation. This is someone who has traditionally uh, donated uh, millions to the Democrats and uh, was uneasy about the fact that Trump had thrown his hat into the ring. And he, he asked us to look at the conditions that would make it easy for Trump to gain the presidency. Because at that stage, of course, no one really believed that uh, he could possibly win. Uh, so, so are we talking very early on? Like are we talking those two years beforehand where he hadn't even really announced, but he was talking about China? Or when we, or are we saying when correct. he actually made – yeah, okay. Yes, correct. This was a few months before he actually uh, – threw his hat into the ring. Yeah, so he'd been talking it up. Um, and and we looked at the, the, the instruction we had, the briefing we had, was to look at the conditions whereby Trump could be easily elected. And we so we looked at the state of the Democrats. We looked at the baggage that uh, was uh, there already um, uh, from various around various individuals, including Hillary Clinton. And uh, we just came to the conclusion that in terms of the disenchantment of such a large proportion of the population with politics generally, and I'm talking about real disengagement, where the people just not interested in voting and thought politics was just um, corrupt from top to bottom, uh, that anyone who came in who could appeal to that constituency would stand a real chance of getting up. And so they were the things we were looking at. What was happening in society uh, and the kind of disenchantment were 
with with the what eventually turned out to be his base in 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 states like Pennsylvania, for example, and uh, Michigan. So what do you, well, I guess you're not engaged in it, but what sort of trends are you seeing now? I, um, you know, I think, uh, there was another Democrat debate happening today. Um, just again, without any research, it looks like he's in a fairly strong position to win again. And I'm, I'm quite surprised with, um, with the Democrat candidates of how, uh, it seems like the entire swath of them seem to be on, on very minority based issues, which again, alienate sort of the 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 i guess core quote unquote traditional american in that sense yes i think that's absolutely spot on he's in a very strong position there's no doubt and that's in spite of the fact that that again his his base have become quite disenchanted in a way with some of the decisions uh, he's made. And a lot of them don't see any advancement in where they were before he was president. And they were expecting him to do certain things and he hasn't. Uh, so this, the issue of uh, Iran, for example, at the moment, the possibility of war with Iran agitated for by John Bolton, uh, that's uh, again displeasing to his base because he promised to get out of the Middle East, promised to to stop all of that. Uh, so there are a couple of factors here that could derail him if he doesn't hold his base, uh, and and they become so disenchanted that they think, oh, not going to bother, won't vote. Um, then then that's a problem problem for him. But the other thing on the Democrat side is if they go with Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren, however brilliant Elizabeth Warren happens to be, uh, their opportunity to uh, attack Trump is actually with somebody like Kamala Harris. But uh, they're unlikely to nominate her for the, uh, you know, Mm. It's, uh, you know, talking about this because the, the information that I read said, uh, was pointing to that there was quite a, a large proportion of people that were, um, that were willing to vote for Sanders, but once he was left, they switched their vote to Trump because of the, of, uh, uh, of a lot of socialist policies that, that sit in there. And the mm. guy that I'm sort of, um, uh, you know, I think he's polling about 1%. I don't think he has a chance though, is, is Andrew Yang, the Democrat candidate who's talking about, um, the idea of universal basic income, which yes, is, yes. Uh, which I, I, I assume you've got to, to me, it's, it's ridiculous to me, but I, I, this seems to be gaining a lot of traction. And I just from our conversation so far have the impression that you might be sort of sympathetic to that as an idea. Well, I'm sympathetic to the idea, certainly, because I, if you look at the, uh, the gradual introduction of robotics into the workplace. Uh, in the US, if you just take manufacturing, over the next perhaps five, six years, we're likely to see between 60 and 65% of jobs that are there today disappear just through automation standardization. Uh, now, that's just blue collar. If, if you extend that to a lot of white collar work like accountancy, law, um, those kinds of professions, we're going to see a situation perhaps for the first time in history where the driver of work, the value we place around work begins to fall away. So what do we have in its place? And how do, if we don't, if we still value work in the way we have done in the past, what what is the replacement? How will people actually earn the money if there isn't work there? So there has to be some kind of replacement to the driver the impulse that comes through work or the motivation that comes through work and the reward that comes through work. Now, if you also tie in um, the the interesting fact that where the universal basic income has been tested and tried, even in place in countries like Namibia, for example, as well as in the Nordic countries, in every every time it's been tried and it's been tried in different ways, it's been a success. There has been no negative uh, impacts. Costs have become lower. Um, 
uh, entrepreneurship has risen, innovation has risen, um, the um, the expectation that people would just drop out and go to drugs or or you know you see suicide rates go up all of the negativity that was expected did not materialize and so in the experiments that have happened so far it's it's all been positive so i think what we need to do is to actually continue to experiment to see if we can find an optimum way of mixing um the possibility for leisure and work more effectively in an environment which is going to be very different from what it is today. Okay. Um, you know, all, all of these, uh, th- these topics sort of, um, th- these are very sort of globalist policies. And what I, what I wanted to ask you about is sort of, you know, with the election of Trump as well, we seem to seem to be noticing that, you know, for the last two decades or so, uh, there seemed to be a very sort of globalist mantra with the EU and these sorts of things. And obviously mm. we've had Brexit, we've had the election of Trump. And there seems to be a very, very renewed level of, of nationalism and focus on the, on the nature, nation state and the, the inhabitants of it. Um, you seem to be very, uh, you know, positive toward the way that that's looking, but you know, I, I'm seeing it the other way with the way that the news is reporting of this sort of level of conservatism and the return to to nationalism. What what do you sort of take out of this in, in terms of you know where where we head from from now? So we have to go to the context to understand my view. And over the past seventy years. Um, at least over the past 70 years, we've been heading, uh, if you like, in a transition where we're, we're gradually going away from the industrial model of how the world works to a different kind of society. If you like, you can call it a civilizational change. We're moving from one kind of society to another. Now, that means we're in transition. And in any transition, any social, political, economic transition, there's going to be turbulence, there's uncertainty, there's complexity, there's ambiguity. And so within that context, I think there are many things that are crumbling and that many other things that are emerging. One of the things that is beginning to emerge is a society that's waking up to the inadequacies of many systems that are just unable to cope with that kind of complexity, uncertainty. We see all the uh, social movements that are coming uh, at us at the moment from the umbrella movement in Hong Kong through to Fridays for Future, led by Greta Thunberg, for example, the number of women and children now coming out and saying the future has got to be different from today. It's got to be different because otherwise we will not be able to uh, solve the many existential problems facing humanity. So for me, it's, it's taking that context, that transitional context as a given and saying, well, we're bound to be going through all of this turbulence at the moment in order to come out at the other side. But what we're not doing is envisioning that kind of society that we want. We know what we want to move away from and what isn't working. What we're really bad at is trying to create a new society which works for everybody. I mean, let's face it, the UN is trying with its sustainable development goals, for example, uh, and there are other patchy initiatives that are trying to envision a more equitable, empathic society where uh, humanity uh, can can work together better than it has in the past. But, you know, that's where we should be focusing and we're not. Do you think um, – I remember listening to a, a, a Canadian professor down here. I, can't, I think he's maybe at the University of Melbourne or University of Sydney, James someone, and he advocated for continuous secession. So again, if, if we talk about sort of Brexit or the North versus the South divide in the US, there's also a, a Western secessionist movement in Canada now. Uh, do, do you think finally sort of uh, – 
instead of the way that we went, what, a, a few hundred years, a couple hundred years ago to develop the nation state of taking all these lands and putting them together, do you think we'll get back to the point that we rip them all apart so that we can get sort of true uh, representation from people at a more community-based level? Yes, I think we're seeing evidence of that now. I think it would be immensely wise for us to do that, uh, especially as, I mean, I, I know a lot of people would disagree with me because what we're seeing at the moment is the power of the state increasing, which is why all states are increasing their surveillance and they're trying to, uh, and there's an emphasis on security and immigration and, and things like that. But that is, if you like, it's the death throes of the nation state trying to find its role in a world which is so different from what it was. And I think what we will eventually see is the nation state, uh, the power of the nation state crumbling uh, and city, certainly cities is where innovation is at the moment. And I think we'll have different kinds of arrangements. We'll still have the nation state for certain things, but hopefully one of the things that will happen is that all the boundaries and borders and border protection that exists today will be seen to be unnecessary as we move into a more fluid and empathic environment. Okay. Look, I just want to ask you one more question, Richard, or or possibly two, I suppose, that wraps up. But I mean, when you talk about, you know, being able to have things like like less borders, what what do you take on on things like Islamic terrorism and the more domestic terrorism that we're seeing from, uh, you know, second generation immigrants? It it just, it doesn't sound like you view this as a threat, but these uh, things like Islamic terrorism are, are pretty daily occurrences, no matter where you are in the world today. Yeah, and you have, what, what you have to ask, of course, is why? Why is that the case? Why is it a threat? Why now? And what we need to do is analyze more effectively what we have done to precipitate, uh, uh, that kind of threat and then do something about it. And, uh, unfortunately, the, what we have today in terms of social media is one, uh, way where we create outrage. I mean, the Googles and the Facebooks of this world create, create outrage quite deliberately because that's the way they sell and make their money. Uh, that generates division and division generates hatred and fear. If we, if we look at the things that uh, are common to us all, if we look at the things that bind us, uh, like um, clean air, uh, food, uh, to, nutritious food to eat, water to drink, the, the kind of empathy that um, families have, even though, you know, we squabble, I think we need to try and focus on those kinds of things and on the strengths of our species and humanity and the ingenuity of humanity to rise above and go beyond those things that we view to be threats at the moment. If you look at the amount of terrorism that actually exists relative to um, the uh, even natural disasters, for example, it's very, very small. But it's it's like uh, nuclear energy. Mm, uh, sure. Nuclear the prospect of using nuclear energy terrifies even people, it, but it's it, it does. Yeah. yeah, yes, it is. So I mean, we have to be realistic, and we're not. Look, the last question that I do want to ask, because we do need to wrap up, have you, um, one of the things also of, of concern to me, um, and I don't know if this will ever happen, but I remember reading for for a long time, for hundreds of years, thousands of years of human history, we could always count on about every 70 years, a famine, a plague, or some form of disease coming to wipe out population to bring levels back down to earth. Mm. When we're going through such a, uh, you know, with, with modern science that now allows us the, the ability to have such a, a population that's escalating so rapidly, um, 
you know, it, it seems like these diseases are, are trying to come back when we think about, um, you know, mad cow or SARS or Ebola breaking out. And, and we're just able to keep it contained at the moment. But have you done any research or any theories on, on sort of, a, you know, another sort of mass bubonic plague or something along those lines um, as, as a threat to our, our rapidly growing population? Yes, we, we have noted uh, uh, the the rise in pandemics and the likelihood of pandemics. And uh, it's uh, the experts in the field are saying exactly the same as the experts, for example, in in, um, the field of warfare, that sooner or later, a pandemic, uh, like a a nuclear accident, is is absolutely likely. Um, it's, It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Um, other than that, I mean, um, you know, no, we haven't done any detailed work, but it's, it's an interesting possibility, certainly, because if, uh, just in terms of the current crises facing humanity, if we don't, uh, make some sensible and different decisions over the next two decades, for example, I'm sure that one way or another, humanity is going to shrink in numbers, possibly by the turn of the next century, down to about 1.52 billion people if we don't get the answers right for climate change, for example. Interesting. Okay. Uh, well, look, we will leave it there. I, uh, I appreciate your time today, Richard. And um, look, I hope the tour goes well. I mean, you're used to doing this, so um, so welcome back. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for such interesting questions. You're more than welcome. Good to speak. Take care.